Welcome to our new podcast. It's called Vital Signs of Democracy and it's presented by The Fulcrum. So let's introduce ourselves. I am Debbie Lynn Molyneux, co-publisher of The Fulcrum, and I'm also the president and CEO of Bridge Alliance, a coalition of almost 600 organizations who are working to bring about a thriving, just, and healthy democratic republic. You can learn more about our work at bridgealliance.us, or you can find your way to be involved at citizenconnect.us. And I'm David Reardon, the director of Vital Signs of Democracy, and I have a long history of producing Hollywood movies, interactive entertainment, and web documentaries. And about a year and a half ago, my team and I became interested in the stories we were telling about whether or not democracy in America was being threatened. So we created Vital Signs of Democracy to offer voters a simple indicator based on our unique narrative analysis that rated the threat level to democracy in America every two weeks. And we base that on the news stories that are being told. And you can see this meter in our narrative analysis at vitalsignsofdemocracy.com. So what are vital signs of democracy and, and why would you as a seasoned Hollywood storyteller feel the need to create this meter with your team? Well, it's a good question. I mean, Vital Signs collects and analyzes the overwhelming amount of political and cultural information that bombards us every day in the news. So we look at the news stories through a very unique lens of what stories we're telling about the data and information that can help us decide if what is being reported on is good news or bad news for democracy. So let me get this right. Since the news is no longer just the facts, ma'am, and we have different news channels that will report vastly different interpretations of the facts or polls or what someone said, your team is taking a look at the various perspectives or stories we are being told as a society and then evaluating if the stories we are hearing are good or bad for our democratic republic and for democracy itself. Yes, that's exactly right. Our belief is that if we don't understand the stories that are driving our political discourse, you could get very confused, as we were in the beginning, about whether or not democracy was being threatened in America. David, can you share with us, like, do you think that anything has fundamentally changed in the way our news impacts our democracy? The simple answer is yes. When you look at what has changed since 1980, when the CNN cable news network launched, or since 2011, when Facebook and Google debuted their online news feeds, the way we get our news and what stories it includes has fundamentally changed from the days of broadcast news networks and newspapers. And here's one important thing to understand about cable networks and social media platforms. At the moment, they are mostly unregulated. Now, it's true the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, does regulate interstate communications by radio, television, or wire. So, for example, over-the-air news programs on major networks like NBC or ABC, or in newspapers like the Washington Post, must offer at least two verified sources that a news story they are telling is true. You can see this in some of our movies, like All the President's Men, where Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein struggled to provide Ben Bradley, then the editor-in-chief at the Washington Post, with the factual confirmation that President Nixon was involved in a cover-up of the break-in at the Democratic Party headquarters at the Watergate complex. We also saw the negative aspects of this regulation when Dan Rather, the most-watched network news anchor at the time, was fired 
for reporting on a story that turned out not to be true. So that sounds good, right? But again, notice that any content presented on cable or satellite networks like CNN, Fox, or MSNBC, or posted on internet services like Twitter, Facebook, or TikTok, are not regulated by these same rules. So you can see the problem. If 52% of the American public are getting their news from social media, it can include content that is based on lies and disinformation. The kind of content that we see presently advocating for violence toward particular groups of citizens based on their race or religion or sexual orientation. Or fake conspiracy theories like QAnon that claims Hillary Clinton is a pedophile holding court in the basement of a Washington, D.C. pizza parlor. They just don't have to be true anymore to wield deep influence with a lot of voters. We certainly saw this on January 6th. Most of the mob that stormed the Capitol believed based on the lies they were being told on cable news and social media platforms that they could stop the peaceful transfer of power to the incoming Biden administration. And they could do this according to the MAGA story by simply halting the certification of the 2020 election results by Congress or kidnapping or killing elected officials like Vice President Pence that were charged to facilitate that lawful certification. And of course, none of that was true. You know, our political debate, unfortunately, has gone from being based mostly on a common set of facts to one that is distorted by disinformation and lies. And in our view, this is causing a lot of distrust in our free press that we used to count on to give us factual information to make decisions. And it's important to remember that one of the major goals in the dictator's playbook to overthrow democracies is to get the citizens of that democracy to not trust their sources of the news anymore as being the truth. You know, it's really interesting that you, that you talk about it that way, because some of us have been concerned about the ability of U.S. citizens to self-govern for more than 20 years. And we've noticed in the last seven or eight years that the number of organizations and concerned citizens has grown exponentially. When did you first become concerned? It started surfacing on my radar about four years ago, and it occurred to me that democracy just wasn't as stable as it had been in the U.S. That's what it felt like to me. I had never thought that democracy was at risk before. We all assumed that it was safe. I was very concerned about what was emerging from the Trump presidency and, and the tendencies that really started to scare me a bit. And I was also concerned about the seemingly lack of effective response from the Democrat Party and its leaders. Well, I know that when I first got involved in this work in 2003, I, I had you know this true belief that our love of country was stronger than our love of political parties. And I started working to just help tap into that love of nation so we could find ways to increase the effectiveness of government to serve us, the citizens. And of course, since then, the vitriol has only increased and my concerns have shifted. I'm now most concerned that the people of the United States are disinterested in showing up as citizens. You know, we've become so self-interested in, in being entertained or in surviving to effectively remind the politicians that they work for us. We become consumers of politics instead of activated citizens. And that's why the fulcrum is focused on reporting the news and telling stories about both the dysfunction of our politics and what's working. 
What about you? How are your concerns about the state of democracy in America today similar or different than they have been in the past? Well, I could answer that with a story because that's what we do. I came of age during the late 60s, early 70s, when America was experiencing a major cultural upheaval. That included the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, women's rights, and environmental concerns, just to name a few things that popped up on the radar. We had four major political figures assassinated in five years, and students were being shot on campus for protesting the, the war. There was a lot of uncertainty, to say the least, and it was scary. But in all that noise and the changes that emerged from those clouds of tear gas, if you want to say it that way, I remember feeling concerned about America's future, but not once did I really think that democracy in America was threatened. Well, how did you and your team set about to explore the state of democracy that was different from what was already being covered in the news? Well, we took up the question at Vital Signs in the only way we knew how as storytellers, you know, by conducting a narrative analysis of the stories that were being told in the news coverage on cable channels and social media platforms. And we were frustrated by the news coverage that seemed to just cover the individual aspects of those threats to our democracy. We looked, but we could not find a simple indicator or a decent overall analysis anywhere, when you added up all that was being reported on in these individual stories would tell us if we were moving towards a stronger democracy or away from it toward something darker. We thought that our unique narrative analysis might help us illuminate why our concern about democracy felt different than it had before based on the stories that we were telling. Now, we can get into more about how that narrative analysis works in a bit. But suffice to say, here was the first important finding that influenced everything we did from that point on. Our initial narrative research helped us identify not just one, but two different Make America Great Again stories that were competing with each other on the cable news and social media platforms. Now, somebody in the progressive audience may say, what do you mean, MAGA story? What do you mean, Make America Great? <laughs> But if you really think about it, yes, it is what the Republicans are saying. They have a version of that. But the Democrats, they're also spinning a future where they want to see democracy stronger, better. We all do, right? So there are two stories. And there was one story, as I said, coming from the right and the red states that seemed to suggest that America needed to be great again by reverting to a white-centric culture of our past and defining America as a Christian nation even though the demographics are shifting. So I want to pause and just challenge you for a moment, because my friends who are MAGA supporters would tell you that that isn't true. And that what they believe is that America was better when people took more responsibility for their own lives and the government was less involved. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Let me see if I can sort out the change in story that we're seeing in the MAGA Republican leadership that is different from the more traditional conservative story. Now, some Republican voters who we now identify as moderates still believe in the time-honored conservative principles that you just mentioned. But when you listen to the more extreme MAGA leadership who have replaced the Republican moderates at the top of the party, we hear a different story than the one told by moderates about who the MAGA leadership believes is their intended audience 
for their version of the Make America Great Again narrative. And the change in their story goes something like this. If you believe that you can no longer win the national popular vote, which includes citizens of all races, you take a different tact to achieve victory. You focus on attracting conservative white voters as your base. The only problem with this nationally is those white voters can be in the minority these days because of the changing demographics in America, which means the MAGA leadership has to resort to other means to win. And this has included MAGA-controlled state legislatures passing extreme voter suppression measures that are aimed mostly at voters of color who they think tend to vote Democrat. They have also made sure that through partisan gerrymandering of the House of Representative districts in red states, that they are dominated by white conservative voters. These measures have the intention to throw the advantage of the election to conservative white voters at the expense of all others. And this can result in Democrats never winning those districts again, and as we saw in the 2022 midterms, can change who controls the House. So there are examples of this in Florida in 2022, where MAGA Republicans flipped three previously solid Democratic districts by radically redrawing the district maps so that they favored the conservative voters. Even though the Florida Supreme Court ruled that these biased maps were gerrymandered, they left them in place for the midterms. You know, and one of the sad things for all of us in the pro-democracy movement is that the moderate narrative on the right that represented those time-honored conservative principles, like you were saying, taking responsibility for your own life without government help, is now being overwritten by the MAGA Republican leadership. And to be clear, they are not imagining this change in demographics. The last time Republicans won a majority of the national vote was in 2004. Normally, a party faced with those kinds of results would broaden their narrative to attract a more diverse group of voters. But the MAGA Republican leadership still seem to believe that by suppressing the votes of the people of color and making it harder for Democrats to vote, they can eke out a win in the Electoral College like Trump did in 2016. So the Republicans you're talking to that perhaps long for the days where the conservative narrative attempted to attract voters of all colors, not just white, either needs to figure out a way to push the MAGA Republican leadership in their party out of power or join with independents and moderate liberals to form a new voting bloc that wants to see democracy in America continue to be strong. And I just want to point out that this is a Machiavellian design by the politics industry to maintain power because that's what the politics industry is all about, to where sometimes voters don't even get a choice, right? Not really, because the, the politicians are picking their voters. So we've kind of gone deep into, you know, what is the first MAGA story on the right? What about the MAGA story on the left? Well, as we said before, this is really important because when we look at what's happening, what's emerging, it's easy to see the MAGA Republican side of this. And particularly if you watch news, it's on every night and all the shenanigans that are going on and so on. But what's going to happen in this country is going to be based on that. But it's also going to be based on what the pro-democracy's Democratic Party forces do to counter that. 
The other Make America Great Again story coming from the left and blue states suggests that America is transitioning to a multicultural society based on the changing demographics. That story postulates that if we're going to make America great again, it has to benefit the majority of all Americans. This means the Democrats are interested in the widest possible voter registration that include all citizens. So based on this narrative analysis that you're continuing to do at Vital Signs of Democracy, are you measuring who is winning the culture wars? Are you measuring the strength or weakness of our story about democracy? Well, I think the simple answer to that is both. We believe that whatever emerges going forward is going to be totally dependent, like I said earlier, which of these two different Make America Great Again stories finds the most support in the American people. We've also come to believe that these two stories, more than any other time since our Civil War, describe two fundamentally different futures for this country. And we are convinced that the choices we make as Americans in the next two years will either reinforce our democratic institutions or fuel a slide into some kind of governance that is much darker and more likely more autocratic. So why are the stories we're telling about democracy in America so important for us to understand at this moment, in addition to what we already get in the news? It's a good question, and it goes right to the heart of the two different kinds of inquiry we citizens can use if we really want to find out what's emerging in American politics. The first thing we can do is to look at the more objective data and information that is being reported in the news, and that can include the results of polls, which politician voted for what legislation, quotes of what somebody said, or these days, who's being investigated. This information is very important as far as it goes, and it can give you some idea of which way the political environment is trending. However, as voters, we felt that we needed a second kind of subjective inquiry to help us determine which stories we were telling that were giving meaning to the data and information that supported one or the other of these two Make America Great Again narratives. To put it simply, there are the numbers and the information that help us quantify what is trending, i.e., who's ahead in the presidential race. And then there are the stories we tell about that data that help us locate the results in one of the two Make America Great Again stories, i.e., if their candidate wins, I see no future in this country. And here's something else. It's interesting that the latest neurological research tells us that the area of the brain that influences our behavior can't seem to tell the difference sometimes between what is actually happening around us and a story that is resonating in our mind. That part of the brain reacts to the story, positively or negatively, as if it is really happening. And that may help explain why these stories are so powerful in determining what any of us choose to do. That reminds me, David, of this story that I heard a long time ago about a basketball player who was injured and he couldn't practice. And one of the areas that he really needed to practice in was free throws. And so his coach told him that while he was in rehab, what he needed to do was spend time every day mentally practicing making free throws. And so he did this, you know, for 10, 15, 30 minutes a day where he just practiced in his mind over and over and over again. And when he was released from rehab and got back on the court, he had actually improved his ability to make free throws because his body didn't know the difference of what his mind had been doing 
in telling him you could make free throws. He actually made more of the free throws in his mind than he did in real life. So that's, I think, is supporting this neurological research that explains why stories are so important for us to know that it's number one, it's a story. And number two, what kind of belief we have in it because it impacts our future. And when you say that you're collecting and analyzing news stories that are telling our story about democracy in America, how did you figure out how to do that? Good question. You know, it took us a while to really understand how we were going to subjectively rate news stories for the threat level they represented in America. And it turned out that our training as storytellers contained the key. When you set out to make a movie or a television show like we have in the past, you first have to define what we call the narrative continuum that is present in the world in which you want to create your story. This narrative continuum represents the range of things that can happen during the story. In a sense, it's a map of possibilities that can widely vary between different films. For example, if you're creating a movie that features multi-dimensional worlds that characters can jump to based on a certain set of techniques, that story is promoting very different possibilities than a story that takes place in just one world like ours. In a sense, the MAGA leadership story, according to our narrative analysis, is based on an alternative world story than the one pro-democracy forces live in. In the MAGA world story, there was massive election fraud in 2020 that resulted in President Biden being elected illegally. Now, it would have been fine if this MAGA world story was just something that was repeated on Fox News or other MAGA media outlets to attract a white audience and, of course, make more money off of their donations. But in this case, the MAGA leadership story was the basis for why the mob stormed the Capitol on January 6th, and some of them sent death threats to election officials as well during the 2022 midterms. Now, it's fair to say that politicians and political parties have always stretched the truth in stories they tell that will favor them over their opponents. However, the danger we see in the current MAGA Republican leadership narrative is that a sizable portion of American voters believe the lies and disinformation it is based on. And based on that belief, they are now doing more than just voting for a story that is somewhat of a fable. They are resorting to violence. And their belief in this alternative world story that the MAGA Republican leadership promotes is resulting in much more uncertainty in America that we have not seen since our Civil War. So for Vital Signs, we developed a narrative continuum that included five different threat levels that we felt America could experience in the next two years. These threat levels, in a sense, told different stories about what America could possibly become and how it was governed. We felt that these five threat levels represented the narrative continuum between the extremes of America being either a direct democracy, which we're not, we're a republic, or a total autocracy, which would be a dictatorship. In addition, we developed 10 key categories of news that we thought would influence the different stories these five threat levels represented. So your narrative continuum also reminds me a little bit about uh, what's called the Overton window, which dictates what's acceptable or not acceptable in society. And there's been a lot of concern about the Overton window shifting, if you will. But if I'm understanding you, those 10 categories of news that you focus on for vital signs of democracy include 
voting rights, election certification, and congressional vote tallies. The second you look at is who's winning the culture wars, you know, which MAGA story is dominant, if you will. The third is reproductive rights. Is it in the hands of the people or the government? Fourth is the effectiveness of our system of justice. Fifth would be the independence of our judicial system. Sixth would be the impact of cable news and social media on democracy itself. Seventh would be mitigating for climate change. Eighth would be the U.S. economy and dark money as it influences our politics. Ninth would be guns, ownership, responsibility, and possible reforms. And 10th would be America's influence in the world. Like, is it waxing or waning? Yes, that's exactly right. Some may argue there are other factors, but based on our narrative analysis, we feel what happens in each of these categories is going to mostly determine if we have a democracy going forward in the next two years. So how do these 10 categories of news potentially influence which of the two Make America Great Again stories we could experience? When we look at the two Make America Great stories that are currently in play in America, we believe that neither one of them is going to result in a, a direct democracy, which would be the pure form of democracy rather than the republic that we have, or a total autocracy, which would be an absolute dictatorship. It's going to vacillate like it is somewhere in between. So we imagined five different levels of threats that could reflect something about that gray area. The five threat level ratings we developed range from extreme to very high to high to moderate or to a low threat level. And we imagined what each of the 10 news factors would look like at each of these five threat ratings. So these are really stories, right? For example, if the threat level was extreme, here's what would be happening with voting rights. If there were elections, the results would be rigged to ensure that the leader of the autocracy was reelected. In other words, elections would be fake. As opposed to if the threat level was low, it would mean that any citizen could vote for whoever they wanted. Those results would be certified by a bipartisan board or something like that. And the winner of the popular vote would take office. Now, the last one I'll talk about is the high threat level, because this is more of what we see right now. What it really represents is it's sort of in the middle between the two extremes. It has tendencies of a stalemate that we're currently experiencing between the two stories. So if the threat level was more in the middle, what we call the high threat level, voting rights would look something like this. There would be open elections. But there also would be a lot of court cases challenging the results based on one side or the other claiming there was fraud. If this sounds familiar, this is a lot of what we're doing right now. Sometimes these challenges would be based on actual facts that would be presented in court, and sometimes they would be based on fake conspiracy stories. The sorting out of all that could delay the final results from being known for weeks, leaving everyone in a state of more uncertainty. And uncertainty, as we've pointed out already, is, is not a good thing for democratic systems. That seems clear enough. And it seems to explain also why there feels like there's so much chaos and confusion at the moment concerning the state of American democracy. Do you have some more words about that? So most voters, if they're paying attention at all, will look at polls or they'll scan the headlines of what certain politicians are saying. 
And certainly we see in both types of media that when they make fun of the other one, we love that. So Fox makes fun of liberals and woke and all that. And the MSNBC makes fun of the MAGA Republicans. And so, as we know, there's an entire news collection that reports on this data and the information that gives the networks the best ratings and makes them the most money. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on that, but you have to remember that why certain stories are on particularly cable news, but also on social media where there's advertising, they are going to present stories that the largest audience is going to show up. And that means they can charge more money for advertising. So you just have to remember, it skews it right from the beginning as a result of that. However, that reading of the news does not tell you whether those numbers or quotes are good or bad news for your side. For example, if you watch the initial coverage of the mob storming the Capitol on January 6th, both Progressive and Fox News covered the violence in pretty much the same way in like the first couple of days. But then just a couple of days later, when Trump decided that the attempted insurrection was playing out negatively for him and his allies, Fox News switched and began negating what happened, referring to the mob as just citizens taking a tour through the Capitol building or whatever that was, or here's the other one, or that they were radical leftists that had disguised themselves as MAGA supporters. Those actually weren't MAGA supporters. Those were actually people dressed up as MAGA supporters. So even though there was a massive amount of video showing otherwise, Fox News and the other MAGA media changed the story to be more favorable toward Trump. So that's that. But there is this whole other system, which is what we get to in the subjective stories. And that's a system of influencers, to use a social media word. And it includes pundits on cable television, podcasters on social media, things our friends say to us, our family, organizations that we belong to, or YouTube videos that we watch that can influence us to put the objective data and information into some sort of story perspective that may be true, and this is the important thing, and may be true, or it may not be. And that's the real change in the news in the last five years. Yeah, I think I want to just inject here real quick, too, that most of what we see on cable news, and I'm going to use news in air quotes here, is actually punditry and analysis. It's not actually journalism. And I think we have collapsed those <clears throat> two to be the same thing. And I think that is part of the story perspective that you're talking about here. That's a really important point, and I'm not going to go into the history of the news. But when cable news emerged, I remember us all saying, is there enough news to fill a 24-7 CNN cable channel, which was Ted Turner's first one to do it? Well, it turned out that there was. But the way they worked it out was that they actually changed from a journalistic approach that was used in network news. That's the 30 minutes a day that on the three major networks at that. Yeah. Time. And I'm old enough to remember that families sat around and watched this every night. And Walter Cronkite or one of the people that were the most trusted people in America. Can you imagine that would do a journalistic approach to news when cable came in, it changed. And it said, in order for us to fill all this space, we need to do something that eventually was called opinion driven programming. And what that meant was exactly what you said. They would have panels of pundits with all kinds of different perspectives. 
come on and not do journalistic reporting about it, but give opinions of whatever the story would be, right? So you would see different people spin out same story in completely different ways, right? And we would wait to see how each one of them was going to do it. And, and it was very entertaining and it can be useful to a point, but we just have to remember that's what changed. And so this opinion-driven programming also then launched itself into social media, where then you get this, just all these people having different opinions about what's going on. Well, and I think the other thing that may have made that work in the early days was the fairness doctrine was still in place. And so the news shows were required to have a diverse perspective um, approach from the opinions that were in the same program. And once the fairness doctrine went away, of course, they didn't have to have diversity of perspective. I love it when MAGA supporters or leadership complains about the liberal media as if that's all we have in this country, which used to be true before Fox News was launched. And Fox News intentionally went after a different audience, which we know, and very conservative audience and so on. Fox News generally has better ratings than CNN and MSNBC combined. They have huge audiences. I think it's 40% of the American people that watch news, watch Fox News, and that's all they watch, as opposed to the rest of us that watch CNN or MSNBC. So it got even more stretched in terms of its story perspective, what it was taking this information and data, and then using a story to interpret it to the audience that they were trying to attract. So the last thing I'll say about this is that these stories that we tell ourselves and that we take in as part of our tribe, like we've been talking about, it's the trickiest thing for people to understand, all of us. I mean, we didn't really understand it until we got into it. Oftentimes, we're not fully aware that a particular story or an impression we picked up somewhere is actually influencing how we think, how we feel, and ultimately, most importantly, what we're going to do. The classic answer these days about why people vote for one candidate versus another is not entirely about their politics or their beliefs, but simply because we like the candidate or something he or she said aligned with what we feel already. Another way of saying this is that we sort of have a gut feel about it, right? But let's be clear, that gut feel does not come from nowhere. All of us are a product of the stories we hear growing up or experience as adults that set the stage for us feeling one way or another about anything. So let's say that you were taught that telling the truth was a good thing. When you look at a candidate, you might form an opinion, not so much on what they say, but a sense that you have about whether they're telling the truth or not. So speaking about trust, I think before we go much further, we mm. should give our audience a sense of how we identify politically. So I'm an independent, and I have been since I turned 18. When I wanted to vote in primaries, registered with either the Republican or the Democratic Party. And so I am currently a registered Democrat in the state of Maryland because I wanted to vote in the primary in the midterms. And I wanted to work on election day at the polls. And in order to do that in Maryland, you have to be registered with a party. But I still waive my independent credentials because that is how I feel. What about you? Well, we're independents as well. And I haven't always been that way. I mean, I was tended to be more progressive, sort of Democrat leaning, right? I keep saying we, you know, with vital signs of America, the team here, 
course, I, I direct it and do a lot of the narrative analysis, but we also have technical people that come in and help us use our AI engine, which is a natural language processing engine, to go out and search for stories in ways that the Google search will not. The analysis that comes out of that is considerably deeper than what you would normally get just by looking up some story on Google as an example. We also have media people because we then have to package all this stuff into some sort of a media expressions. We want it to be easy to take in. We don't want people to have to spend a long time to at least get a first impression of what we are saying is happening. And that's what the meter does. So that being said, I would say currently that I personally don't have much faith in either party, whether it be the MAGA Republicans or we'll just call them the Biden Democrats at this point, that either party will sufficiently be able to organize the majority of American voters, which in any poll, when you look at it's 65 to 70 percent of voters generally agree on principles of democracy, that we want a democracy in this country. And that group includes moderate conservatives, independents, moderate liberals. So the majority of Americans sit there and the rest sit out on the extremes on either side. What would you like to see in terms of the influence that vital signs has on maintaining our democracy? Well, let me say this. At the moment, it is easy to see the Republican story coming from the MAGA leadership on the right. In the two years since Biden was elected president, the Republican Party seems to have been completely taken over by the more extreme elements of the conservative right. Moderate conservatives will often say these days that they don't recognize what the Republican Party stands for anymore because of the rights make America great again story. That being said, we believe the future of democracy in America will be decided by what emerges on the right in terms of their more anti-democracy leanings and how effective the left's progressive Make America Great Again story is in promoting pro-democracy principles. At the moment, we're not sure where the leadership is going to come from that could unite the majority of Americans to stand up for democracy in this country. However, one of the things that comes out of our narrative analysis, besides rating the threats to democracy in America, are clues to the themes of a Make America Great Again story that could unite the majority of Americans to reject the extremes on either the left or the right. And when I look at what we want to add to the democracy conversation and vital signs of democracy, I would love it if we could contribute to the Make America Great Again narrative that is designed to unite all of us. So now we've gotten kind of deep into the gears of how vital signs of democracy works and how we have now a rating system to help us not only hear the news, but contextualize it into is the news we're hearing helping or harming our democratic republic. And it gives us a way to process the stories so that we can look at the results of the midterms and interpret those more accurately, if you will. And it also helps us to understand the stories that are already influencing the beginnings of the 2024 presidential campaign. Do you have any last words, David? Well, just a little preview of what's coming next in the next clip is that we're going to get into what stories emerged around the 2022 midterms and also what we're seeing right now start to emerge as we move into 2023. And we're really beginning the 2024 presidential campaign at the moment. And what I can say about the 2022 stories, because we've been talking about stories and why we look at it this way, if you were paying attention 
the story about the 2022 midterms changed from what people predicted was going to happen in terms of the red wave to something else. And so we can see the importance of stories and when they change, it can change all the behavior that goes along with it. So people should check that out and they can see how what we've talked about here sort of in a general term about why stories are important actually gets applied to the news. All right, well, thank you for listening to The Vital Signs of Democracy presented by The Fulcrum. I'm Debbie Lynn Molyneux, along with David Reardon. We hope you subscribe and listen. And until next time, let's keep our democratic republic strong. Mm -hmm.